invite you to follow in the reading of God's Word. We've been working in Matthew's Gospel. We're in the midst of a very intense and wonderful chapter, Matthew 24, as Jesus gave this last lengthy sermon before His cross. We call it the Sermon from the Mount of Olives or the Olivet Discourse. Chapter 24 speaks of the great truths of Christ's coming again and of trouble for Jerusalem and other truths that we would be looking at. It's hard to cut it up because it's such a unified chapter, but we've already seen it twice leading up to verse 28. I'm going to begin reading in verse 29 today and read through verse 35 of the wonderful event that this tells about. Listen carefully to God's holy word. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. And now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things, you know it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is God's holy word unto us. Let us pray for a moment. Father, Let us not see this as a text for dispute or for human theories, but as the wonderful truth that your Son put forth in it. Let us see Him and give Him praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I join scholars and preachers and disciples of Jesus Christ from all the ages in believing that the hope of Christ visibly returning in glory at the end of history is the logical conclusion to the whole chain of Christ's historic acts in, uh, in time and in space, His virgin birth, His atoning death, His bodily resurrection, His ascension to heaven. If you stop at that and you don't add the next, you've left off the last item of the chain, His wonderful, blessed hope that He will appear again to bring history to a conclusion. If you take away the second coming, I'm thinking of what happens in Boston every year. I believe it's this coming week, the Boston Marathon. Jesus would be like the man who registers for the Boston Marathon and comes to the start line and, and takes off with the other runners But if he does not come again, then he would be like a runner who somehow just disappeared along the course and never came to the finish line. 
Or another way of saying it might be that without the second coming of Christ, the events of the four Gospels and of the book of Acts, and for that matter, all the New Testament, begin to sound as if God had written a check for a hundred million dollars that never would be cashed. You see, the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be as absolutely different and distinct as anything could possibly be from His first coming to earth. At Christmas, we love to celebrate the lowliness and the humility and the quietness, the fact that he came and was born, and and only a few to whom special notice was given even realized that God was coming into the world. And he lived his life here for three decades as a servant, despised, rejected, not noticed. And then he was condemned and mocked and crucified and died between two thieves Well, all that is going to be absolutely different because the Scripture says when Christ comes a second time to this world, He will come as supreme ruler, recognized king, such that all leaders of the world will have to bend the knee before Him and literally even be judged by Him. And that final event that some have called the momentous event will bring an instinctive distinction dismay and a sense of ruin to the unbeliever who will know, just will know in their hearts and their conscience immediately that that their time of ruin has come, that the time of God's mercy allowing them to repent has ended. But it will be viewed completely differently by believers who recognize in the coming of Christ instinctively that this is the hour of our triumph, our completion, and our eternal safety and fulfillment. Those who already belong to Christ, the Scripture says, will be gathered to Him, welcomed to their eternal homes, and given those glorified bodies that are actually the capstone of all the promises of redemption that God has made to us already. Well, just very quickly recapping our last two times in Matthew 24. If you've not been with us, I'm jumping in the middle of of important things here that have been traced. We saw that in this Olivet Discourse sermon, Jesus predicts events that are both near to the time of Christ and some that are still centuries away from His time. He predicted first a, a whole series of general events that would go on apparently for a long time, things that would be like the birth pains, he called them. Birth pains that signified they were moving towards a final event, but the birth pains were long in their endurance. And then last time, we saw how the text, in a manner of speaking, had a a bit of a zoom lens on it as it moved in on the events that, that brought an end to Jerusalem and the temple. And those things were fulfilled. We know they were. We have accurate accountings of the Roman conquest of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But then it seems the text turns again about in verse 22 and starts to speak about troubles and trials and persecutions that will go beyond merely Jerusalem itself and continue through ages to come yet as believers remain in this world. And the promise that we finished with last time was the understanding that There would be no way that we would miss 
his coming. Trouble would not blind us or somehow confuse us to the point that we would not know when Christ was coming because one of the comparisons was that it would be like lightning flashing across the sky that no one could possibly miss when he comes. Well, all that was setting the stage, in a manner of speaking, for what now unfolds with a turning point at the beginning of verse 29 where I read this morning. And here in these next few verses through verse 31 at least, we hear the very clear statement of Jesus himself that he will come back. He will appear. In fact, in this text at least it doesn't say come back as much as it says he will appear. He will be unveiled. The, the, The clouds that obscure him, the ability of our sense and understanding to see him will be removed and he will appear again to people in history in such a way so striking that there will be no doubt about his Godhead or his authority or his majesty. He will come in a, an event not witnessed by a few shepherds or a few magi who travel a long way. He will be witnessed by every eye on the earth, not the eyes of believers alone, every eye. And he will be revealed visibly, bodily, simultaneously in such a way that these events will move through a swift progression of stages to judgment, to the resurrection body for believers, to the recreation of the heavens and the earth told elsewhere. The great events that indeed can be called momentous because they will mean the end of history in the phase as we know it. I remember reading once that uh, it is said at least that newspaper editors or publishers have a term that they use to speak about the largest type font that would ever be put across a headline on a newspaper. You know, a a type font like Japan Surrenders at the end of World War II or or something like that, the great history-making events, the largest possible type font that can be put in a newspaper heading is, is called, in a perhaps tongue-in-cheek way by newspaper editors, the second coming headline. Now, that's interesting because even it says that even secular minds cannot think of a greater event than this tremendous event that the New Testament announces in more, place than, more places than one. So this morning we want to look at least at some of what is here in this amazing hour towards which we must discipline ourselves to think about it, to meditate on it, to be aware of this great thing that has been announced. For if we say we have hope in Christ, any hope that does not deliberately and specifically include Christ's second coming is certainly not Christian hope. Now, today I want, first of all, to uh, take on a little bit of clearing away of some things that might be seen as difficulties. There are some difficulties here. There are many debated things in this chapter that we could possibly, you know, spend a, a half hour on any one of them. But there are a few things in this text that cause some questions in various minds, and I want to take three of them, first of all, as textual problems that we wrestle with about the sequence of Christ's return and see if we can see some light on these. 
The first comes in verse 29 with the words, immediately after the distress of those days. Now, there are people who have taken this Olivet Discourse, chapter 24, and they've said this is entirely about what is going to happen to Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The whole chapter, they say. Now, we would agree with them so far as to say that a portion of it that we've already looked at is indeed about what happened to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Well, they would argue and they would use for uh, their ammunition this phrase, immediately after. In other words, they are thinking, it says, immediately after Jerusalem falls in that terrible tragedy, this must appear. People must somehow see Christ, or the, the, the problem is they can't really explain how this, what seems like nothing less than a supernatural, marvelous, amazing event, could have happened in A.D. 70. So there's a real problem with their view. But you don't have to be caught in their view if you have the correct understanding of immediately after. It certainly is a turning point in the text. If I tell you I'll expect to be going home today at 1245, arriving home, and, and immediately after arriving home, I, I should experience lunch. That's a reasonable expectation for me. Most Sundays, it means the next great event after my departing from the church and my morning responsibilities is lunch. Now, if immediately after here meant that Jesus was going to come on the clouds with power and glory as the next thing after Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, we've got a big problem, folks, because it didn't happen. It certainly didn't happen. In fact, there are those people, Bertrand Russell, the a great atheist of the previous generation who spoke very openly about his disbelief said one of the reasons he could not believe in Jesus Christ was that he promised he would return within one generation after his death, and he didn't do it. So Bertrand Russell understood this text to be saying that the second coming had to be within a generation of the fall of Jerusalem. Well, that is not a problem so much if you would interpret and understand, as many do, and I said to you last time, I'm among them, that we see a change in the text at verse 22 moving away from the events in Jerusalem towards a longer period when there will be trouble throughout the ages and, and what many would call tribulation, that these, the, the intensity of it that brought Jerusalem down would be cut short, verse 22 says, but Nevertheless, trouble would go on and confusion would go on and deception would go on throughout the centuries. And that indeed is what we believe is predicted here, that there will be a long period of time in which these things continue. If that is the case, if we've correctly understood that, then there's no problem with hearing immediately after, you see. Immediately after this lengthy period of trouble, the next great event, will be the appearing of the Lord. And behind that, and giving us, I think, some real justification for seeing it that way, is that the phrase, those days, usually, as it's, it's used other places in the Bible, usually tends to indicate not a few days, like it might sound, but rather a long period, an eon, a, a, a whole period, perhaps the reign of a king, or an even longer time those days when the kings of Israel reigned, or something like that. A long period is usually understood by that. So we believe that this 
appearing of Christ in a visible and glorious way is the immediate event that follows the long time of trouble and persecution and difficulty, the birth pains that go on throughout, as we have seen, many centuries until our present time. Well, there's another issue here in verse 29, and that is uh, people read what it says here about things observed in the sky or observed in the heavens, you might say. Sounds like some very amazing, the sun will be darkened. What does that mean? An eclipse? uh, Will the sun go out? The moon will not give light? Of course, if the sun doesn't give light, the moon doesn't either because the moon doesn't give light. It only reflects light. And the stars will fall from the sky. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. What's this about? What is this? Are we to expect some great astronomical disruption? Well, we try to interpret the Bible just as literally as it can be interpreted. And when it's speaking literally, we understand it that way. But here's what we know about this passage. Jesus was quoting here from Isaiah chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. Now, you could go back and look that up if you wish. In your Bible, Isaiah 13, 10, and 11 is a passage that talks about the great day of the Lord, this final day of history. And it, there, it's quite plain when Isaiah uses this language about the heavenly bodies that he's speaking in a poetic way of speaking or what we might say metaphorical, a comparative way, in order to say there will be great disruption. And to paraphrase what he's saying, it's as if Isaiah was saying, the events among the nation will be so tumultuous, things will be turned inside out, evil will be ruling, and good will be put down. Why, it will be as if the heavens themselves reversed their functions and and the sun no longer shined. Now, Jesus is quoting that. He's quoting a poetic metaphor of all the difficulties and all the turmoil that will be going on in the ages and saying it's as though the sun and moon and stars would be reversing their functions. Do we need to understand this and that stars are literally going to be falling all over the place? I'm not sure that's what he intended. I think he's saying there are indeed days of great distress and tumult and difficulty that will perhaps cause us to be so unhinged as if the sun had stopped shining. Well, there's a third textual problem in verse 34 here as we think about these initial possible difficulties in this passage. And for many, it's the greatest difficulty in the whole passage. When Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, stop and think for a minute. If you could take verse 34 and move it up, Maybe move it up and make it verse 28, for example, or, or even a little sooner than that, make it verse 22. That wouldn't be any difficulty at all, because if it came at verse 22, what would it be saying? It would be saying, when Jerusalem falls and, and all these things I'm predicting for that local catastrophe happens, it will be in this generation. And you say, great, it was. It's fulfilled. But the problem is, verse 34 is verse 34. And it comes after the text has already told us about this cosmic event in 30 and 31 of Christ appearing in the skies. So how are we to understand this, people ask? Well, I take a a position, again, it's not some invention of mine. I 
I don't uh, have that kind of wisdom or genius to interpret the Scripture some unique way, but many others have seen it this way, and I think they're correct, is to see that Jesus is really speaking here in a two-dimensional manner, the same as the whole character of this passage. Remember again, two weeks ago, I spoke about the ranges of mountains, the far-off mountains that are so so dim and blue they almost blend into the sky and the near range that you might also see that's very clear and you can see the rocks and the snow cap and so on. Well, keep in mind that's what prophecy is about. It speaks of both that which is near and that which is far. And if that is true of verse 34, then there is indeed a sense in which Jesus was telling his disciples, you will see events here. And they did within their generation. Most of those 11 disciples, we believe, were still alive. If they weren't necessarily in Jerusalem themselves, they were at least alive when Jerusalem fell. So they did have a literal fulfillment of that. But it does seem right to accept what Jesus is saying here in a wider intention way to mean this whole generation made up of both rebellious unbelief and and faithful belief in me, this generation of men and women, will continue on. Humanity in its current state will continue on to see these things until they have all come to pass. And here we are. We, the latter-day disciples, are here today to prove that indeed the generation of belief and unbelief has not passed away before these final events should come to be. But that indeed is a problem verse. I don't know if we can take away all of the mystery of it. And we should not pretend to take away mystery that our minds cannot take away. We're not trying to explain things simply that are deep and complex. But that seems to be the way to think. Well, if we set those problem ideas to one side now for a moment, let us examine Jesus' own description of his final appearing. This second matter is the great thing I want you to see here, and particularly in verses 30 and 31. Look at how he describes it. He uses his, his name by which he always referred to himself and says, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven. To the other. Keep in mind who's saying this. this. This originates from the same person who is coming. He's not talking about someone else coming. He's predicting his coming. And he's saying this just before he went to that ignominious, terrible cross to die. It would seem to be the end of everything. Forget Jesus, you know, he's dead. And yet he predicted this great thing. And so it was, of course, a very bold statement that he made. We think for a moment about some parallels to this statement because it's not the only such statement in Scripture. Daniel 7, verse 13 and following our uh, terminology that we would see Jesus looking back to. His mind was full of Scripture, and even as he spoke about what he would do, he was drawing forth the words that Daniel 7 had used. There Daniel wrote, In my vision I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. 
he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all the nations of men. So there was Daniel predicting it long before. And then, too, we hear it echoed in parallel ways in writings of the Apostle Paul in particular, First or Second Thessalonians 1, 7, where Paul says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his powerful angels. But, of course, the classic parallel is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the event is announced in the context of Paul giving comfort to believers about those who have died, those believers who have died. You can imagine in that first generation, if they thought Christ was coming very soon and and other believers had died, they would say, oh, no, somebody's missed it. They won't be here. Paul wrote to comfort them and said, don't be troubled. Don't be comfortless about those who've gone on before. And he wrote to say, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who remain, Paul said, will be gathered with them. So there's that echoing of this same picture, the same great picture of a personal, visible, glorious appearing of Christ. Let me just unpack those three words for a minute. It's personal because the one who will come is the same Jesus. You remember Acts 1 that describes Jesus ascending to heaven? And there was an angelic announcement to the disciples who watched that supernatural event. And the angel said, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? Don't you understand that this same Jesus who is taken up from you, will come again as you have seen him depart. I love that truth because to me it says that at the end of time we are not going to be confronted with some alien visitor to our planet, but we are going to meet the familiar Jesus whom, although we have never seen with our eyes, Others have in past history the same one, the familiar Jesus who knows us, who shared our skin, so to speak, who shared our experience, who was tempted in every way that we are tempted without sin yet. The same Jesus who died, who rose, who was taken up is the one who's coming personally. We can also say it will be visible. That's very clear from these predictions that People will see it. Another verse on that score is Revelation 1-7, which says, Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him. Let there be no doubt of that. And then it's not just personal and visible. It's glorious. I don't know what the word glorious means to you. Most of us don't really have a good way of fleshing that word out because there aren't that many glorious things in this world. But we think of the opposite of glorious, and you might go back to Isaiah 53 where Jesus on this earth was prophetically described, and it said he had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. When he came the first time, there was nothing about his appearance that men desired. He didn't stand out. He wasn't a movie star. He was the absolute example of ordinariness, born in a barn, Nothing spectacular about him. He was not glorious in that sense, visibly. But when he comes, the Scripture describes Christ returning as a conqueror, a judge of all, the redeemer not just of 
believing men and women, but even of the created order itself. And it describes him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No wonder Handel got so carried away with that marvelous music that God gave to him to describe the hallelujah chorus of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will be glorious. You think of the most glorious pageantry of human beings on this earth. I, I don't know what that would be. Maybe, maybe we think of the, the Queen of England and all of the pageantry that attaches to her. You know, the, the beautiful coach that she rides in and the matched horses and the dragoons of guards that ride alongside her in their perfect uniforms and the fantastic jewels that are on her head. Let me tell you, beside that kind of glory... No disrespect intended, Queen Elizabeth, but your pageantry is like that of beggar children in some slum making mud pies compared to the glory of Jesus Christ visible to the world. Now, we're told here also, as he describes this, about consequences that will unfold quickly. Two of them, a consequence for unbelief, As the Scripture says in Jesus' prediction here, that the world, the nations, will mourn when they see him. He was quoting, we believe, Zechariah 12.10, which says they will look on the one they have pierced and mourn for him. Why? Because his coming means judgment. It means separation of the weeds that grow now among the wheat of God's people. It means a time for condemnation to come on those who would not repent. And so there's wailing for this, wailing of lost opportunity, no more chance, no more mercy extended. People have had ages of mercy, ages of announcement, ages of telling the good news, and they would not have it. And now they can no longer have it. But of course, there's another consequence for men and women of faith in Jesus Christ. And we read here of his angels gathering his elect from all corners of the world. The great realization of the purpose of God in his covenant from the earliest page of the Old Testament was that he would gather a people for himself. The Scripture says he knows that people. He knows them individually. He knows their names. He protects their souls. If their bodies are killed in persecutions or disasters, he protects them. They cannot be taken out of his grasp. And now is the visible representation of that. Because at the end, everyone out of every nook and cranny, every corner of some dark nation where we don't even think the gospel has gone, where some man or woman has loved the Lord Jesus Christ and bowed to him and called him Lord, these are gathered, the dead in Christ gathered, whose bodies perhaps were decimated as they lived in this world. They're gathered because they are living souls before him. And then his people who lived gathered also in a great day. And there's no wailing there as a consequence, is there? There is shouting. There are songs. And there is rejoicing and tears of happiness that are too sweet for words to express. 
Now, there's more that will happen in that great day. Jesus doesn't use this 24th chapter to describe the remaking of the heavens and the earth. Read Second Peter 3 if you want to add that. It belongs with these events, but it's not told right here. But having seen this description, let's ask in closing how we are to live in light of this great event. More is coming about that next time. But let me tell you this. You are not an unusual person if this promised event that we're told will shake the earth and the heavens seems rather fantastic to you. You are not unusual if you say, boy, I don't think about that very often. It doesn't seem that real to me. It's so absolutely unlike anything I know. I'm consumed in my life of buying groceries and getting those darn income taxes paid by Tuesday and and going to work and taking care of my family. These are the important things to me. How can I be expected to concentrate on something that is so unreal? Let me just tell you this, Christian friends. The problem is not that the event is unreal. The problem is that we are simply too grounded in the things of this world. And the reality that is to come is fantastic to us simply because we've never seen it, but that does not make it less real or less practical. A God who could raise his son from the dead and take him into heaven, can he not do this? Does your faith somehow deny Christ the right to do this great thing that's been predicted? And I think we will only dwell in in, in this being a growing reality to us as we deliberately think on it. And we explore it as the Scripture tells it to us. It shouldn't be the only thing we know about Christ, but it should be included, certainly, in what we know about Christ. You know, there's a way in which evangelical people have of almost dealing with their relation to Jesus Christ as a kind of what I would call a commodity. People say, I accepted the Lord. I accepted Christ as my Savior. Well, that speaks of a true thing and something we want to have happened for you, but be careful that you're not speaking about it as you would say, I bought an insurance policy or I got a new car. You see, a relationship with Jesus Christ is no, no simple commercial commodity. It is a relationship with the living God whom we can expect to see and greet And instead of speaking about taking Christ, as you might say, I I bought a loaf of bread, you need to be thinking about being taken hold of by him and taken up into him in all of his greatness and power and unimaginable splendor. His glory, you see, is going to make every object that you value in this world that you might think will be interrupted by his coming to seem like it is tawdry and worthless and nothing trivial by comparison when Jesus Christ becomes our all in all with his incomparable majesty and glory. There was a Bible commentator named Robert Candlish who said this, quote, I always know my exact position in this world when behind me I can fix my view on Christ dying and ahead of me I can glimpse Christ coming. You see, he knew his compass bearing. We have these little global positioning things that tell us where we are, you know, and the directions to get somewhere from there. Well, in a sense, you have the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the coming of Christ, and those events tell you where you are 
in this world. And if we would be roused to a deeper sense of that glory that awaits us, I think we would go to the struggles that lay before us in this world with deeper confidence and greater hope. I close with these wonderful words of Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford was a Scottish man who loved Jesus Christ passionately. He loved the Savior that he could not wait to greet. He suffered a lot in his life. Here's something Rutherford wrote in a letter once talking about the return of Christ. He said, Oh, that Christ would take longer strides. May he fold the heavens together like an old cloak and shovel time and days out of the way to make ready for the Lamb's bride to meet her husband. Oh, heavens, he said, move faster. Oh, time, run, run, run. Hasten that marriage day, for my love for Jesus is tormented by these long delays. May God teach us to love our Savior that passionately so that we might say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. Come in glory. Amen. Father, teach us this great truth. Let us soak ourselves in it. Let it be the crown of all that we know about Christ. Let it be the regulating compass point of our lives so that we would never lose our way. Direct us by the hope we have in a coming Savior. Amen. We need to sing the first.